Chapter Twenty of Son of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Son of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Twenty. It was still dark when the Honorable Morrison Baines set forth for the trysting place. He insisted upon having a guide, saying that he was not sure that he could find his way back to the little clearing. As a matter of fact, the thought of that lonely ride through the darkness before the sun rose had been too much for his courage, and he craved company. A black, therefore, preceded him on foot. Behind and above him came Korak, whom the noise in the camp had awakened. It was nine o'clock before Baines drew rein in the clearing. Miriam had not yet arrived. The black lay down to rest. Baines lolled in his saddle. Korak stretched himself comfortably upon a lofty limb, where he could watch those beneath him without being seen. An hour passed. Baines gave evidence of nervousness. Korak had already guessed that the young Englishman had come here to meet another, nor was he at all in doubt as to the identity of that other. The killer was perfectly satisfied that he was soon again to see the nimble she who had so forcefully reminded him of Miriam. Presently the sound of an approaching horse came to Korak's ears. She was coming. She had almost reached the clearing before Baines became aware of her presence, and then, as he looked up, the foliage parted to the head and shoulders of her mount, and Miriam rode into view. Baines spurred to meet her. Korak looked searchingly down upon her, mentally anathematizing the broad-brimmed hat that hid her features from his eyes. She was abreast the Englishman now. Korak saw the man take both her hands and draw her close to his breast. He saw the man's face concealed for a moment beneath the same broad brim that hid the girl's. He could imagine their lips meeting, and a twinge of sorrow and sweet recollection combined to close his eyes for an instant in that involuntary muscular act with which we attempt to shut out from the mind's eye harrowing reflections. When he looked again they had drawn apart and were conversing earnestly. Korak could see the man urging something. It was equally evident that the girl was holding back. There were many of her gestures, and the way in which she tossed her head up and to the right, tip-tilting her chin, that reminded Korak still more strongly of Miriam. And then the conversation was over, and the man took the girl in his arms again to kiss her good-bye. She turned and rode toward the point from which she had come. The man sat on his horse watching her. At the edge of the jungle she turned to wave him a final farewell. "'Tonight!' she cried, throwing back her head as she called the words to him across the little distance which separated them, throwing back her head and revealing her face for the first time to the eyes of the killer in the tree above. Korak started as though pierced through the heart with an arrow. He trembled and shook like a leaf. He closed his eyes, pressing his palms across them, and then he opened them again and looked— but the girl was gone. Only the waving foliage of the jungle's rim marked where she had disappeared. It was impossible. It could not be true. And yet, with his own eyes, he had seen his Miriam. Older a little, with figure more rounded by nearer maturity, and subtly changed in other ways. More beautiful than ever, yet still his little Miriam. Yes, he had seen the dead alive again, he had seen his Miriam in the flesh. She lived. She had not died. 
He had seen her, he had seen his Miriam, in the arms of another man. And that man sat below him now, within easy reach. Korak, the killer, fondled his heavy spear. He played with the grass rope dangling from his g-string. He stroked the hunting knife at his hip and the man beneath him called to his drowsy guide, bent the rein to his pony's neck, and moved off toward the north. Still sat Korak, the killer, alone among the trees. Now his hands hung idly at his sides. His weapons and what he had intended were forgotten for the moment. Korak was thinking. He had noted that subtle change in Miriam. When last he had seen her, she had been his little half-naked mangani wild, savage, and uncouth. She had not seemed uncouth to him then, but now in the change that had come over her he knew that such she had been. Yet no more uncouth than he, and he was still uncouth. In her had taken place the change. In her he had just seen a sweet and lovely flower of refinement and civilization, and he shuddered as he recalled the fate that he himself had planned for her to be the mate of an ape-man, his mate in the savage jungle. Then he had seen no wrong in it, for he had loved her, and the way he had planned had been the way of the jungle which they too had chosen as their home. But now, after having seen the Miriam of civilized attire, he realized the hideousness of his once cherished plan, and he thanked God that chance and the blacks of Kovudu had thwarted him. Yet he still loved her, and jealousy seared his soul as he recalled the sight of her in the arms of the dapper young Englishman. What were his intentions toward her? Did he really love her? How could one not love her? And she loved him, of that Korak had ample proof. Had she not loved him, she would not have accepted his kisses. His Miriam loved another. For a long time he let that awful truth sink deep and from it he tried to reason out his future plan of action. In his heart was a great desire to follow the man and slay him, but ever there rose in his consciousness the thought, she loves him. Could he slay the creature Miriam loved? Sadly he shook his head. No, he could not. Then came a partial decision to follow Miriam and speak with her. He half started, and then glanced down at his nakedness and was ashamed. He, the son of a British peer, had thus thrown away his life, and had thus degraded himself to the level of a beast that he was ashamed to go to the woman he loved and lay his love at her feet. He was ashamed to go to the little Arab maid who had been his jungle playmate, for what had he to offer her? For years circumstances had prevented a return to his father and mother, and at last pride had stepped in and expunged from his mind the last vestige of any intention to return. In a spirit of boyish adventure he had cast his lot with the jungle ape. The killing of the crook in the coast inn had filled his childish mind with terror of the law, and driven him deeper into the wilds. The rebuffs that he had met at the hands of men, both black and white, had had their effect upon his mind, while yet it was in a formative state and easily influenced. He had come to believe that the hand of man was against him, and then he had found in Miriam the only human association he required or craved. When she had been snatched from him, his sorrow had been so deep 
that the thought of ever mingling again with human beings grew still more unutterably distasteful. Finally, and for all time, he thought, the die was cast. Of his own volition he had become a beast, a beast he had lived, a beast he would die. Now that it was too late he regretted it, for now Miriam, still living, had been revealed to him in a guise of progress and advancement that had carried her completely out of his life. Death itself could not have further removed her from him. In her new world she loved a man of her own kind, and Korak knew that it was right. She was not for him, not for the naked, savage ape. No, she was not for him, but he still was hers. If he could not have her and happiness, he would at least do all that lay in his power to assure happiness to her. He would follow the young Englishman. In the first place he would know that he meant Miriam no harm, and after that, though jealousy wrenched his heart, he would watch over the man Miriam loved, for Miriam's sake, but God help that man if he thought to wrong her. Slowly he aroused himself. He stood erect and stretched his great frame, the muscles of his arms gliding sinuously beneath his tanned skin as he bent his clenched fists behind his head. A movement on the ground beneath caught his eye. An antelope was entering the clearing. Immediately Korak became aware that he was empty. Again he was a beast. For a moment love had lifted him to sublime heights of honor and renunciation. The antelope was crossing the clearing. Korak dropped to the ground upon the opposite side of the tree, and so lightly that not even the sensitive ears of the antelope apprehended his presence. He uncoiled his grass rope. It was the latest addition to his armament, yet he was proficient with it. Often he traveled with nothing more than his knife and his rope. They were light and easy to carry. His spear and bow and arrows were cumbersome, and he usually kept one or all of them hidden away in a private cache. Now he held a single coil of the long rope in his right hand, and the balance in his left. The antelope was but a few paces from him. Silently Korak leaped from his hiding place, swinging the rope free from the entangling shrubbery. The antelope sprang away almost instantly, but instantly, too, the coiled rope with its sliding noose flew through the air above him. With unerring precision it settled about the creature's neck. There was a quick wrist movement of the thrower. The noose tightened. The killer braced himself with the rope across his hip, and as the antelope tautened the singing strands in a last frantic bound for liberty, he was thrown over upon his back. Then, instead of approaching the fallen animal as a roper of the western plains might do, Korak dragged his captive to himself, pulling him in hand over hand, and when he was within reach, leaping upon him even as Sheeta the panther might have done, and burying his teeth in the animal's neck while he found its heart with the point of his hunting knife. Recoiling his rope, he cut a few generous strips from his kill, and took to the trees again, where he ate in peace. Later he swung off in the direction of a nearby water-hole, and then he slept. In his mind, of course, was the suggestion of another meeting between Miriam and the young Englishman that had been born to him by the girl's parting, tonight. He had not followed Miriam because he knew from the direction from which she had come and in which she returned that wheresoever she had found an asylum it lay out across the plains, 
and not wishing to be discovered by the girl, he had not cared to venture into the open after her. It would do as well to keep in touch with the young man, and that was precisely what he intended doing. To you or me the possibility of locating the Honorable Morrison in the jungle after having permitted him to get such a considerable start might have seemed remote, but to Korak it was not at all so. He guessed that the white man would return to his camp, but should he have done otherwise it would be a simple matter to the killer to trail a mounted man accompanied by another on foot. Days might pass, and still such a spoor would be sufficiently plain to lead Korak unfalteringly to its end, while a matter of a few hours only left it as clear to him as though the makers themselves were still in plain sight. And so it came that a few minutes after the Honorable Morrison Baines entered the camp to be greeted by Hanson, Korak slipped noiselessly into a nearby tree. There he lay until late afternoon, and still the young Englishman made no move to leave camp. Korak wondered if Miriam were coming there. A little later Hanson and one of his black boys rode out of camp. Korak merely noted the fact. He was not particularly interested in what any other member of the company than the young Englishman did. Darkness came, and still the young man remained. He ate his evening meal, afterward smoking numerous cigarettes. Presently he began to pace back and forth before his tent. He kept his boy busy replenishing the fire. A lion coughed, and he went into his tent to reappear with an express rifle. Again he admonished the boy to throw more brush upon the fire. Korak saw that he was nervous and afraid, and his lip curled in a sneer of contempt. Was this the creature who had supplanted him in the heart of his Miriam? Was this a man who trembled when Numa coughed? How could such as he protect Miriam from the countless dangers of the jungle? Ah, but he would not have to. They would live in the safety of European civilization, where men in uniforms were hired to protect them. What need had a European of prowess to protect his mate? Again the sneer curled Korak's lip. Hansen and his boy had ridden directly to the clearing. It was already dark when they arrived. Leaving the boy there, Hanson rode to the edge of the plain, leading the boy's horse. There he waited. It was nine o'clock before he saw a solitary figure galloping toward him from the direction of the bungalow. A few moments later Miriam drew in her mount beside him. She was nervous and flushed. When she recognized Hanson, she drew back, startled. "'Mr. Baines' horse fell on him and sprained his ankle.' Hanson hastened to explain. He couldn't very well come, so he sent me to meet you and bring you to camp. The girl could not see in the darkness the gloating, triumphant expression on the speaker's face. We had better hurry, continued Hanson, for we'll have to move along pretty fast if we don't want to be overtaken. Is he hurt badly? asked Miriam. Only a little sprain, replied Hanson. He can ride all right, but we both thought he'd better lie up to-night and rest, for he'll have plenty hard riding in the next few weeks. Yes, agreed the girl. Hanson swung his pony about, and Miriam followed him. They rode north along the edge of the jungle for a mile, and then turned straight into it toward the west. Miriam, following, paid little attention to directions. 
She did not know exactly where Hanson's camp lay, and so she did not guess that he was not leading her toward it. All night they rode straight toward the west. When morning came, Hanson permitted a short halt for breakfast, which he had provided in well-filled saddlebags before leaving his camp. Then they pushed on again, nor did they halt a second time, until in the heat of the day he stopped and motioned the girl to dismount. "'We will sleep here for a time and let the ponies graze,' he said. "'I had no idea the camp was so far away,' said Miriam. "'I left orders that they were to move on at daybreak,' explained the trader, "'so that we could get a good start. "'I knew that you and I could easily overtake a laden safari. "'It may not be until tomorrow that we will catch up with them.' But though they traveled part of the night and all the following day, no sign of the safari appeared ahead of them. Miriam, an adept in jungle craft, knew that none had passed ahead of them for many days. Occasionally she saw indications of an old spoor, a very old spoor, of many men. For the most part they followed this well-marked trail along elephant paths and through park-like groves. It was an ideal trail for rapid traveling. Miriam at last became suspicious. Gradually the attitude of the man at her side had begun to change. Often she surprised him devouring her with his eyes. Steadily the former sensation of previous acquaintanceship urged itself upon her. Somewhere, sometime before, she had known this man. It was evident that he had not shaved for several days. A blonde stubble had commenced to cover his neck and cheeks and chin and with it the assurance that he was no stranger continued to grow upon the girl. It was not until the second day, however, that Miriam rebelled. She drew in her pony at last and voiced her doubts. Hanson assured her that the camp was but a few miles further on. "'We should have overtaken them yesterday,' he said. "'They must have marched much faster than I had believed possible.' "'They have not marched here at all,' said Miriam. "'The spoor that we have been following is weeks old.' Hansen laughed. "'Oh, that's it, is it?' he cried. "'Why didn't you say so before? I could have easily explained. We are not coming by the same route, but we'll pick up their trail sometime today, even if we don't overtake them.' Now at last Miriam knew the man was lying to her. What a fool he must be to think that anyone could believe such a ridiculous explanation! Who was so stupid as to believe that they could have expected to overtake another party, and he had certainly assured her that momentarily he expected to do so, when that party's route was not to meet theirs for several miles yet? She kept her own counsel, however, planning to escape at the first opportunity when she might have a sufficient start of her captor, as she now considered him, to give her some assurance of outdistancing him. She watched his face continually when she could, without being observed. Tantalizingly the placing of his familiar features persisted in eluding her. Where had she known him? Under what conditions had they met before she had seen him about the farm of Buana? She ran over in her mind all the few white men she had ever known. There were some who had come to her father's duar in the jungle. Few, it is true, but there had been some. Ah, now she had it. She had seen him there. 
She almost seized upon his identity, and then, in an instant, it had slipped from her again. It was mid-afternoon when they suddenly broke out of the jungle upon the banks of a broad and placid river. Beyond, upon the opposite shore, Miriam described a camp surrounded by a high thorn-boma. "'Here we are at last,' said Hanson. He drew his revolver and fired in the air. Instantly the camp across the river was astir. Black men ran down the river's bank. Hanson hailed them, but there was no sign of the Honorable Morrison Baines. In accordance with their master's instructions, the blacks manned a canoe and rowed across. Hanson placed Miriam in the little craft and entered it himself, leaving two boys to watch the horses, which the canoe was to return for and swim across to the campsite of the river. Once in the camp Miriam asked for Baines. For the moment her fears had been allayed by the sight of the camp, which she had come to look upon as more or less a myth. Hanson pointed toward the single tent that stood in the center of the enclosure. There, he said, and preceded her toward it. At the entrance he held the flap aside and motioned her within. Miriam entered and looked about. The tent was empty. She turned toward Hanson. There was a broad grin on his face. "'Where is Mr. Baines?' she demanded. "'He ain't here,' replied Hanson. "'Leastwise I don't see him, do you?' "'But I'm here, and I'm a damned sight better man than that thing ever was. "'You don't need him no more. You got me.' "'And he laughed uproariously and reached for her. "'Miriam struggled to free herself. "'Hanson encircled her arms and body in his powerful grip "'and bore her slowly backward toward the pile of blankets "'at the far end of the tent. "'His face was bent close to hers.' His eyes were narrowed to two slits of heat and passion and desire. Miriam was looking full into his face as she fought for freedom when there came over her a sudden recollection of a similar scene in which she had been a participant, and with it full recognition of her assailant. He was the Swede Malbin, who had attacked her once before, who had shot his companion who would have saved her, and from whom she had been rescued by Buona. His smooth face had deceived her, but now with the growing beard and the similarity of conditions recognition came swift and sure. But today there would be no Buona to save her. End of chapter 20